this, I give you one last kiss. There's nothing, no response from the clean, soft flesh that used to be your lips. Hello and welcome to KSFS. You are listening to KSFS Radio, San Francisco at BeccaMedia.net slash KSFS Radio. It is an audio service of the Broadcast and Electronic Communication Arts Department of San Francisco State University, some rights reserved under Creative Commons license. And you have just entered Phantasmagoria. Have you ever wondered what worlds exist outside our own? Where the portals deep in the enchanted forest lead to, or what beings outside of time and space exist in the minds of those who build universes for fun. Wander with me into the realms of the unknown as I explore worlds of myth and imagination that make you wonder if you're still dreaming. In Phantasmagoria, we'll explore places created in literature and media that expand what we think is creatively possible. Come with me to the other side. Phantasmagoria, broadcasting live on KSFS Radio on Wednesday. We have entered the phantasmagorical world, and today... Well, so my intended goal with this show is to examine world building and alternate realms of reality created through literature, media, mythology, fiction... And it can be said that these worlds exist in the mind. And to that point, I'd like to explore the possibility of fabricated perception, that which is created within the mind in the form of dreams, and that which may be created external to us in the form of simulations. Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide? No escape from reality. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. And there are a couple of things that I'd like to address to the point of simulations. The, there are a number of individuals who have thought long and hard about the existence of our world as both a dream and a simulation. Going back to Descartes, who posited that since dreams are often indistinguishable from life, how do we know we aren't in one? I'd also like to look at Nick Bostrom, who formulated the simulation argument, um, and to that, to, to some relevancy to how we interpret our world and our perception of our world, I want to mention Plato's cave and how the, these limited forms can shape our perception of reality. Uh, Jean Baudrillard, the author of Simulacra and Simulacrum, also wrote about the, and he was known as the father and pimp of postmodernism, wrote about how, how our world exists as a collection of symbols. And when those symbols get further from reality, they start to form what is known as the hyperreal. Uh, and these concepts are referenced throughout different forms of literature and media. Um, of course, there are animated series that approach fabrications of reality, such as The Ghost in the Shell, Paprika, A 
Assassin's Creed where you're exploring the memories of your ancestors. Dot Hack, Sword Art Online, the collect the cyberpunk science fiction novels such as Neuromancer, which was one of the first to formulate the idea of a matrix or a virtual three-dimensional cyberverse that we can enter into. Snow Crash, which also has a similar concept of this universe, this fabricated world. And there becomes also the question of computer and robot sentience, artificial intelligence, which is a concept very well addressed in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Philip K. Dick has written on the fabrication of reality in a lot of his works, um, most notably Let My Tears Flow, The Policeman Said. And some of my favorite games, such as The Psychonauts, as well as, of course, The Matrix, which is something that warrants a valid amount of examination. And today I'm joined by again by my cousin Rigo. Hey, how's it going? Who is but, uh, here to help me populate the airwaves with simulated sound. All you're hearing are ones and zeros. Is anything I'm saying really real? Let's find out. So are we dreaming or perhaps in a simulation? How do we know our existence happens the way that we think it does? That we exist in what is known as basement reality or real reality as many of us have come to assume. And if we are in a dream or in a simulation, what implications does this have on our lives? As you hear my voice right now, how do you know that what you perceive is actually the world you presume it to be? Today, as we explore the possibility of our own existential fabrication, I will examine the ideas of several deep thinkers who've delved into this philosophy. So, one of the first things I'd like to approach perhaps, would be the ideas of Plato's cave and the nature of that controlled sense of perception. And so let us hear a short allegory of the cave explained by Alex Gendler for a TED-Ed video talk. What is reality, knowledge, the meaning of life? Big topics you might tackle figuratively, explaining existence as a journey down a road or across an ocean, a climb, a war, a book, a thread, a game, a window of opportunity, or an all-too-short-lived flicker of flame. 2,400 years ago, one of history's most famous thinkers said life is like being chained up in a cave forced to watch shadows flitting across a stone wall. 
pretty cheery, right? That's actually what Plato suggested in his Allegory of the Cave, found in Book 7 of The Republic, in which the Greek philosopher envisioned the ideal society by examining concepts like justice, truth, and beauty. In the allegory, a group of prisoners have been confined in a cavern since birth with no knowledge of the outside world. They are chained facing a wall, unable to turn their heads, while a fire behind them gives off a faint light. Occasionally, people pass by the fire carrying figures of animals and other objects that cast shadows on the wall. The prisoners name and classify these illusions, believing they're perceiving actual entities. Suddenly, one prisoner is freed and brought outside for the first time. The sunlight hurts his eyes, and he finds the new environment disorienting. When told that the things around him are real, while the shadows were mere reflections, he cannot believe it. The shadows appeared much clearer to him. But gradually, his eyes adjust, until he can look at reflections in the water, at objects directly, and finally, at the sun whose light is the ultimate source of everything he has seen. The prisoner returns to the cave to share his discovery, but he is no longer used to the darkness and has a hard time seeing the shadows on the wall. The other prisoners think the journey has made him stupid and blind and violently resist any attempts to free them. Plato introduces this passage as an analogy of what it's like to be a philosopher trying to educate the public. Most people are not just comfortable in their ignorance, but hostile to anyone who points it out. In fact, the real-life Socrates was sentenced to death by the Athenian government for disrupting the social order, and his student Plato spends much of the Republic disparaging Athenian democracy while promoting rule by philosopher kings. With the cave parable, Plato may be arguing that the masses are too stubborn and ignorant to govern themselves. But the allegory has captured imaginations for 2,400 years because it can be read in far more ways. Importantly, the allegory is connected to the theory of forms developed in Plato's other dialogues, which holds that, like the shadows on the wall, things in the physical world are flawed reflections of ideal forms, such as roundness or beauty. In this way, the cave leads to many fundamental questions, including the origin of knowledge, the problem of representation, and the nature of reality itself. For theologians, the ideal forms exist in the mind of a creator. For philosophers of language viewing the forms as linguistic concepts, the theory illustrates the problem of grouping concrete things under abstract terms and others still wonder whether we can really know that the things outside the cave are any more real than the shadows. As we go about our lives, can we be confident in what we think we know? Perhaps one day a glimmer of light may punch a hole in your most basic assumptions. Will you break free to struggle towards the light even if it costs you your friends and family? Or stick with comfortable and familiar illusions? Truth or habit? Light or shadow? Hard choices, but if it's any consolation, you're not alone. There are lots of us down here. So Plato discusses how our perception of reality gets shaped by the symbols that we are exposed to. And to that point, Descartes also 
positing that, you know, if this world is indistinguishable from a dream, how do we know whether or not we are really here, whether or not we are dreaming um, or in some sort of other form of fabricated reality? Uh, and Baudrillard, uh, the author of Simulacra and Simulation, takes that concept of the the representations of symbols even further by discussing well i'll just i'll just read to you a little bit of um what what he believes and what he has hypothesized um so dominated by simulation the current 20th century phase Extensive advances in science and informational technology, digitality, genetics, and cybernetics are key sites of simulation. Increased use of models in all areas of culture and society. DNA, binary code, opinion polls, referenda, marketing. Most of this is not entirely science fiction. The first great novel of universe simulation, Crash, according to... uh, according to Baudrillard, uh, shows that the current model of science fiction is no longer science fiction. It is our world. Nothing is invented. In Crash, there is neither fiction nor reality anymore. Hyper-reality abolishes both. Reality status. Signs bear no relation to any reality whatsoever. They are pure simulacra, simulations. The real returns but only in its simulation. Simulations are not appearances of reality. This would leave the reality principle intact. Simulation is the collapse of the real with the imaginary, the true with the false. Simulation does not provide equivalence for the real, nor does it reproduce it. It reduplicates and generates it. The very definition of the real becomes that of which it is possible to give an equivalent reproduction. The real is not just what can be reproduced, but what is already reproduced. This is the hyper-real, the more real than real. Here are some comparative examples of the mutation of a sign through the orders of simulacra. The first is a counterfeit. The automaton plays with reality, questions humanness, soul, morality, an obvious but theatrical fake. The second is production, the robot, equivalent to man but only as abstract operational process. No interrogation of humanity or appearance. Its origin or real is mechanical efficiency, a triumph of dead work over real labor. Simulation is the third. And this is the clone, the android or replicant, not equivalent to man, but the generation of the real by its model, DNA, digital and electric technologies, collapse of difference between the true and the false, replacement by hyper-real, more human than human. One of the examples he gives of this is how our, the development of changing skin color demonstrates technological progression of simulacra in, in terms of tanning specifically which was once achieved with an artificial use of the natural sun, then produced by lamps, later by pills, hormones, and chemicals, and now we've gotten to a point where we can intervene at the genetic level to get the look that we want. 
Simulation, he says, is a panic-stricken production of the real. When the real is no longer what it used to be, nostalgia assumes its full meaning. So that kind of leads us into the, the simulation argument, which is something generated by a man named Nick Bostrom who formulated the idea or the, or the concept that we may be, in fact, living in a simulation. And there are, according to, according to this theory, it is more probable than not that we exist in a simulation. In a theoretical physics conference um, led by Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, I forget what year, I'd have to look it up again, but a uh, few theoretical physicists gave it about a 50-50 chance we're in a simulation. It's a 50-50 chance if only one person in the future decides to create a simulation of, of a potential simulation of us. Or we're just the sims to a higher being in well, another dimension. Right, but let's assume that we are the sims to a, a being in a higher dimension. That would mean that every time another higher being boots up a copy of that program, they create a new iteration of our universe. Yeah. Which means that every time that that happens, the probability of us being simulations goes up. It sure. doubles. Right? At least it goes up by a factor of one. And every time that copy is copied... We, 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 we just yeah. create and, 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 and like, I, I don't have the, the knowledge of math or statistics to really jump into this, but I would like to give a brief moment, uh, for a friend of mine to explain to you kind of what the, po what, what the theatrical and potential dramatic nature of the matrix is. The Matrix is a system, Neo. That system is our enemy. When you're inside, you look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, these people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. Were you listening to me, Neo? Or were you looking at the woman in the red dress? I was... Look again. Freeze it. This... This isn't the Matrix? No. It's another training program designed to teach you one thing. If you are not one of us, you are one of them. What are they? Sentient programs. They can move in and out of any software still hardwired to their system. That means that anyone we haven't unplugged is potentially an agent. Inside the Matrix, they are everyone and they are no one. We have survived by hiding from them, by running from them. But they are the gatekeepers. They are guarding all the doors, they are holding all the keys, which means that sooner or later, someone is going to have to fight them. Someone? I won't lie to you, Neil. Every single man or woman who has stood their ground, everyone who has fought an agent has died. But where they have failed, you will succeed. 
Why? I've seen an agent punch through a concrete wall. Men have emptied entire clips at them and hit nothing but air. Yet their strength and their speed are still based in a world that is built on rules. Because of that, they will never be as strong or as fast as you can be. What are you trying to tell me? That I can dodge bullets? No, Neo. I'm trying to tell you that when you're ready, you won't have to. So, that being said, I would like to give an opportunity for Mr. Bostrom himself to represent his, his argument about the simulation theory and exactly what that might mean. I think that he lays it out pretty well, but um, another, another friend of mine does arguably a, a better job in some ways. Um, I'm a big fan of Josh Clark, who's from the podcast Stuff You Should Know, and he also created a series about the end of the world and existential threats to humanity, and one of the epilogues that he discusses is about the potential possibility that we are existing inside of a simulation. So first I'd like to start with a short clip from an interview with Mr. Bostrom. Well, there is this article that I published back in 2003 presenting the simulation argument. This is an argument that tries to show that at least one of three propositions is true, although it doesn't tell us which of these three. The three propositions in question is first, that almost all civilizations at our stage of technological development go extinct before they reach technological maturity. So that's the first possibility. Uh, a second possibility is that there is a very strong convergence among all technologically mature civilizations in that they all lose interest in creating ancestor simulations, as I call them. These would be very detailed computer simulations of people like their historical forebears, detailed enough that the simulated people in these simulations would be conscious. So the second possibility is that they just lose interest in doing this. And the third possibility is that we are almost certainly living in a simulation. So there's this argument that shows that one of these three is true. And the full argument involves some probability theory, but the basic idea can be grasped quite simply, which is that suppose it were the case that the first possibility did not obtain. So then some non-trivial fraction of civilizations at our stage eventually reach technological maturity. Then suppose the second possibility also does not obtain. So some non-negligible fraction of those mature civilizations are still interested in using their resources to running ancestor simulations. You can then show that because each mature civilization that devoted some resources to this purpose could run astronomical numbers of ancestor simulations, you can show that if the first two possibilities do not obtain, then there will be many, many more simulated 
people like us, then there will be non-simulated people like us. In other words, almost all people with our kinds of experiences would be living inside simulations rather than outside them. If the first two possibilities are false. And conditional on that, we should therefore think we are probably one of the typical simulated people rather than one of the exceptional non-simulated people. So the structure of the argument then is that if you reject the first two hypotheses, then the third one follows, which then means you can coherently reject all three. That, that's the structure of the simulation argument. If there's a further possibility that if you have a simulated civilization, that that simulated civilization might, inside the simulation, develop the technology to run its own simulations. And you might then have a kind of nested simulation with simulation inside the simulation you might have many levels of simulation but that's an optional extra doesn't the basic simulation argument doesn't presuppose that it's just that if you extrapolate the kind of computing power that an advanced civilization will eventually have and you figure if they would use some of that immense computing power to running simulations they could run an astronomical number of them so therefore in that scenario most people with our kinds of experiences would be among the simulated people because for each original history there would then be maybe millions or, or, or billions of simulated histories. So that was a little bit of Nick Bostrom talking about his simulation argument and where where that's where that comes from uh that interview is titled nick bostrom the simulation argument full on the youtube channel science technology and the future which leads to some very interesting questions about uh simulations and the the probability that we're in one which Josh Clark breaks down further and even talking the way that uh, my cousin Rigo brought up of the, the, the potential reality that, you know, e even if it's just for the purposes of a game, maybe it's for historical purposes or for scientific reasons, but even if it's just in the same way that we boot up a copy of The Sims, how that reality perhaps exists to us. So here is another excerpt from the simulation argument epilogue, episode 10 of The End of the World with Josh Clark. Back in 2003, Nick Bostrom expanded on a concept that had been around at least since the classical Greeks first recorded their thoughts on it. The idea that what we experience as reality isn't real. The followers of Plato discussed it in the Academy at Athens, and then in the 1600s it was taken up and examined by René Descartes, the Enlightenment philosopher who famously identified that he was because he thought. Descartes wondered if perhaps we exist in a reality that's actually a dream. After considering his own experience with dreams, Descartes decided that if we do exist in a dream, we would never be able to tell. What he experienced in dreams seemed like reality to him, just as much as reality did in waking life. Without any indication to distinguish between the two, we would never really be able to tell the difference. It wasn't until 2003, however, when Nick Bostrom wrote his paper entitled, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? that anyone went to the trouble of formalizing the idea that what we consider reality isn't actually basement reality. 
Bostrom hit upon a way to examine the nature of reality, and it's based on whether we expect to make it through the great filter. He called it the simulation argument, which supposes that there's a very good chance and we are not actually real life humans, that instead we are simulated humans living in a simulated universe. So Nick Bostrom refined this into a, a proper logical argument and showed that you need to kind of accept uh, that either um, we are going to go extinct really soon, or uh, we are for some reason our post-human descendants will never ever run simulations, maybe because they're impossible or because they're very, very moral or have some coordination, or we are almost certainly in a simulation. If you didn't recognize that voice, that was Anders Sandberg, Bostrom's colleague at the Future of Humanity Institute. Being an argument, the simulation argument doesn't provide evidence one way or the other, which is beautiful, because that leaves it to each person to be persuaded by it or not. But to get into it, we first have to agree on a couple of points. Remember when humanity's cosmic endowment came up all the way back in episode three? That's the idea that if we are the only intelligent life in the universe, as it seems we are, then once we spread off of Earth, all the matter and energy that we can get our hands on before it expands out of our reach forever is ours to put to use for whatever amazing things we can come up with. If we manage to successfully navigate the existential risks that are coming our way and pass through the great filter, then it seems likely that our descendants, humans in the future, we'll use some of that cosmic endowment to create massive computers. Perhaps we will use nanobots to deconstruct planets to use as raw materials for those massive computers. And we'll build Dyson spheres to capture energy at the source of a star to power them. That our descendants will have massive computers seems like a fairly tame prediction as far as predictions about the future go. Think about how important computing is to our civilization today. It's a pretty good bet that as we continue moving along our technological path, computing will grow ever more important. And should we end up a post-biological society, computers will become even more important. They will provide the support structure for our very being. So if we're agreed that if we manage to save the world, our descendants will go on to have vast amounts of computation available to them, we can move on to the next point that they will use some of that computing power to run simulations of us, their ancestors. They could have any reason to run simulations of human history. For fun, like the reason we play The Sims or Age of Empires, as a sociological or anthropological model, or as part of an educational exhibit that celebrates the time that we save the future of the entire human race and intelligent life in the universe from near extinction. Whatever their reason, we can imagine that in the future, they might run what Bostrom calls ancestor simulations. Importantly, one of the beautiful things that makes the simulation argument persuasive is that it doesn't matter when this will happen. The argument puts no time constraints on any of this. Our descendants can build those computers and run those simulations a thousand years from now or a million. It doesn't matter. Just so long as we can agree that at some point they will. So if we're agreed that our descendants will at some point in the future build massive computers and use some of that ridiculous amount of computing power available to them to run simulations of human history, we can now enter the simulation argument. 
It goes something like this. Either we are living in a computer simulation run by our descendants in the future, or we're not. If we're not living in a simulation, then that means we are what we tend to think we are, members of the real-life human race, living in basement or real reality in the 21st century, about three and a half billion years on from the origin of life on Earth. But as plainly obvious as that may seem, the simulation argument raises a question. Why aren't we simulated? Bostrom identified a couple of possible reasons. One is that our descendants are fully capable of simulating us, they just choose not to. It's possible that our ancestors won't run simulations because their computing power is far too precious for even a minute fraction of it to be allocated to something potentially frivolous like an ancestor simulation. Or maybe the humans of the future are too moral to run an ancestor simulation. That the possibility that suffering could arise in the universe they create, like what we experience in our own universe now, is just too much of a moral gamble for their taste. In other words, they don't want the karmic mark against them for creating another universe where suffering lives. Or perhaps running ancestor simulations is just too hard. And of course, it's always possible they just don't feel like it. But take a closer look at this possibility. It shares the same fatal flaw with arguments that look to solve the Fermi paradox. It presumes that not one, not one single future human decided to build a simulation of historic humans. Not a single person figured out a way to allocate some of that vast amount of computing power to simulate the universe and humanity in it. Not a single person came across a scientific study that would benefit from a model of human history. Not a single person was curious enough. Of the quadrillions or possibly sextillions of humans left to come, who will populate a span of time lasting billions of years, not a single one of them created an ancestor simulation. That's how it must be, because all it takes is one. For one person in the future to run one single ancestor simulation, and the simulation argument is activated. So, that kind of puts into perspective the probability of how likely it is that we may or may not exist inside of a fabricated world. Um, the The idea that no one in our potential future would, with the with the you know potentially infinite levels of resources and exponentially expanding levels and abilities of technology would decide not to run some kind of ancestor simulation becomes it i mean it just becomes very unlikely the new york university philosophy professor david chalmers uh said you're not going to get any proof that we're not in a simulation because any evidence that we could get could be simulated right and on that note he he talks about the concept of god if we are a simulation then our the person or being simulating us would be considered god but when you think about uh he says we in this universe can be can create simulated worlds and there's nothing really remotely spooky about that our creator isn't especially spooky it's just some teenage hacker in the next universe up. And honestly, if this is a simulation... I love that. ...of 
if there if this is a simulation of human history the sims never follows a specific course like how do we know that our reality leads to the universe where we can create simulations right if our version of this algorithm is even slightly different from the historical reality how do we know that our reality ever even achieves the level of technology where we're able to simulate they could our own just world? be messing with the variables right but if we can get to that point then there's no doubt almost well, but if we can then you get into the into the realm of a nested situation, right? Where you have simulations nested inside of other simulations. Like Inception. Dreams within dreams. Um, and on that note, I'd like to just send you quickly to a word from our sponsor. Aha! Oh, hello there. Have you come to pay for your rainbow treats? We knew you would. Won't you join us in our rainbow squirt pledge of purpose? To promote niceness. To make the world prettier. To share candy with everyone. To obfuscate the true nature of the milkman. To protect the milkman at all costs. Or threaten, or threaten, 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 threaten to reveal your secret, secret objective. Go, girls! Protect the milk! I know! Do not follow! The milk is not ready, and you are not ready for the milk! delicious. My milk is delicious. Special delivery today. I am the milkman. My milk is delicious. Boyd? Are you okay? Time for the final delivery to this address. Hey, is that milk regular kind? Or the exploding dream kind? It's fortified with what the world wants. What the world deserves. Are you sure you don't want to just talk about this, Boyd? 
So, this program, as you may know now, is brought to you by The Milkman. Remember, my milk is delicious. Uh, so one thing I wanted to mention before we have to cut out for the day is a very somewhat disturbing concept um, based on the idea that some some AI may pose some sort of existential threat to us in the future. Um, and I should say that this thought experiment known as Rocco's Basilisk has induced some unpleasant psychological effects in people. So if you are psychologically sensitive to thought experiments, maybe tune out at this point in time. Um, however, this is an idea posed by a user named Rocco on the Less Wrong Community blog. Rocco used ideas in decision theory to argue that a sufficiently powerful AI agent would have an incentive to torture anyone who imagined the agent but didn't work to bring about the agent into existence. Essentially a vengeful computer god, which we may or may not be living inside the simulation of now. Rigo believes that if there was some such computer god that it wouldn't have any reason to be vengeful or malicious towards us, right? Yeah, I just don't see why anybody would be willing to create a uh, malevolent cre creation just to prevent it from getting them. Right, and I... And I do agree with you, but let's assume that we're in a simulation created by that computer god. It's already it already exists, right? So the only reason that I could see potentially for it to want to inflict pain or torture the inhabitants of its you know fabricated world that don't have the the goals or motivations to bring its existence about in our world would be that it wants to create and facilitate a world in which it is the like omnipotent power and that the focus of humanity becomes that we should do that and this is a little bit of from a computer's perspective what mr smith has to say about humans and their nature well anyways thanks for i guess putting us in the line of torture <laughs> i'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when I tried to classify your species, and I realized that you're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed. And the only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? A virus. Human beings are a disease a cancer of this planet, you are a plague, and we are the cure. My personal opinion is that we are not in a simulation, and the proof is that our, is dreams. Our subconscious is so, like, like, chaotic, filled with mayhem, any possible 
like we create realities that are beyond imagining in our own like in our own brains and i don't see how with any amount of computer per, like computer simulation we could create the like beauty and terrifying chaos that our subconscious manages to create i i don't know i think i think all things are possible that which we cannot explain through science we perceive as magic and i think that that might be uh some aspect of that part of our nature so this has been phantasmagoria and i just want to play you guys out with a radio broadcast or an audio theater broadcast of an excellent short story known as they're made out of meat by terry bissom Several from different parts of the planet took them aboard our recon vessels, probed them all the way through. They're completely meat. That's impossible. What about the radio signals? They use radio waves to talk, but the signals don't come from them. The signals come from machines. So, who made the machines? That's who we want to contact. They made the machines. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Meat made the machines. You're asking me to believe in sentient meat. I'm not asking you, I'm telling you. These creatures are the only sentient race in this sector, and they're made out of meat. Okay, maybe they're like the Orphali. You know, a carbon-based intelligence no. that goes through a meat stage. No, they're, they're born meat and they die meat. We studied them for several of their lifespans, which didn't take too long. We all know the lifespan of meat. Ugh. Maybe they're like the, the Wedeli, a meathead with an electron plasma brain inside. No, we, we thought of that. They're meat all the way through. No brain. Oh, there's a brain. There's a brain, all right. It's just that the brain is made out of meat. So, what does the thinking? You're not understanding. I, the, the brain does the thinking. The meat. You're asking me to believe in thinking meat. Yes, thinking meat. Conscious meat. Loving meat. Dreaming meat. The, the meat is the whole deal. Are you getting the picture? They're made out of meat? And they've been trying to get in touch with us for almost a hundred of their years. So, what does the meat have in mind? First, it wants to talk to us. Then, I imagine it wants to explore the universe, contact other sentients, swap ideas and information, the usual. We're supposed to talk to meat. That's the idea. That's the message they're sending out by radio. Hello, anyone there? Anyone home? That sort of thing. They actually talk, then? They use words and ideas and concepts? Oh, yes. Except they, they do it with meat. I thought you just told me they use radio. They do, but what do you think is on the radio? Meat sounds. You know how when you slap or flap meat, it makes a noise? They, they talk by flapping their meat at each other. They can even sing by squirting air through their meat. Ugh. This is too much. What do you advise? Officially or unofficially? Both. Officially, we're required to contact, welcome, and log in any and all sentient races or multi-beings in the quadrant without prejudice, fear, or favor. Unofficially, I would advise that we erase the records and forget the whole thing. I was hoping you would say that. It seems harsh, but there's a limit. Okay, how many planets are we dealing with here? Just one. They can travel to other planets in special meat containers, but they can't live on them. And 
being meat, they only travel through sea space, which limits them to the speed of light and makes the possibility of their ever making contact pretty slim. Infinitesimal, in fact. So we just pretend there's no one home in the universe? That's it. Okay, and the ones who've been aboard our vessels, the ones you've probed, you're sure they won't remember? They'll be considered crackpots if they do. We went into their heads and smoothed out their meat, so we're just a dream to them. A dream to meet. How strangely appropriate that we should be meat's dream. And we can mark this sector unoccupied. Okay, agreed. Officially and unofficially. Case closed. Any others? Anyone interesting on that side of the galaxy? Yes, uh, a rather shy but sweet hydrogen core cluster intelligence in a class 9 star in G445 zone. It was in contact two galactic rotations ago. Wants to be friendly again. They always come around. Why not? Imagine how unbearably, how unutterably cold the universe would be if one were all alone. Thank you for listening to the second ever episode of Phantasmagoria. At the top of the show, we heard my friends, the Forget-Me-Nots, who you can find more of their fabulous music at forgetmenots.bandcamp.com. That's spelled like astronauts. And shortly after that, we heard Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody. And towards the middle or end of the show, we had a message from the milkman our sponsors which was an excerpt from the psychonauts video game you can contact the show at phantasmradio at gmail.com that's p-h-a-n-t-a-s-m radio at gmail.com and i look forward to hearing from you and i look forward to you hearing more of me